Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Ambassador Jeffrey Bader. From his first tour in gray drab Beijing in 1981 to arriving with President Obama on Air Force One three decades later as special assistant to the president, Jeff Bader has been involved in nearly every major event in U.S.-China diplomatic relations. Bader is that rare career official able to operate both in the minutia of a state visit and the broader strategy needed to address enduring U.S. security concerns. He's also an official who jumped the unspoken barrier between career employees and political appointees, experienced at briefing cabinet secretaries and presidents on a course of action on how to deal with China. Given Bader's long involvement in making and executing U.S. policy towards and with China, we've broken up our discussion into two episodes to capture the richness of his experience. In this second conversation, Bader explains the end game of the negotiations to have China join the World Trade Organization, or WTO, in 2001, from his time as the Assistant United States Trade Representative for China. He goes on to illuminate why he decided to advise then-dark horse candidate Barack Obama in the 2008 presidential race and his transition into the White House. Bader talks through President Obama's inaugural trip to Asia in 2009, which included these public remarks in Beijing, first from Chinese President Hu Jintao, then Obama. The Chinese side is willing to work with the U.S. side to ensure the sustained, sound, and steady growth of this relationship to the greater benefits of peoples of our two countries and people throughout the world. Thank you all. Now we'd like to give the microphone to President Obama. Good afternoon. I want to start by thanking President Hu and the Chinese people for the warmth and hospitality that they have shown myself and our delegation since we arrived. Ambassador Bader ends our conversation with one thing he believes the Trump administration has right about dealing with China, the need for a personal connection between the U.S. and Chinese presidents. And now, part two of my conversation with Jeff Bader. I wanted to move on to your time at the Office of the United States Trade Representative and China's accession to the WTO. You Mm -hmm. went to Namibia to be ambassador, and then you came back and uh, joined USTR uh, towards the end of the WTO accession negotiations. Mm -hmm. Um, What did you see as your role as the ouster for China in that kind of very long 14-year accession process? How did you conceive your role of kind of getting this over the finish line? Uh, I came back at the invitation of USTR uh, Bob Zellick. Uh, the bilateral trade negotiations had been completed under Charlene Barshevsky uh, during the Clinton administration. So what was left was essentially a ways to conform China's commitments to WTO rules the multilateral part of the negotiation. So that was what I was facing, was a series of uh, multilateral commitments uh, on the part of the Chinese. Um, The Bush administration was pretty well committed to getting it done. Uh, Basically, Zelik was committed to getting it done, and Zelik was a force. Uh, And while there were some questions in this or that corner of the security apparatus within the Bush administration, particularly from, I'm trying to remember where I heard the questions coming from, maybe from Paul Wolfowitz. Um, Zelig's view was this was uh, the best WTO deal that had ever been negotiated with any exceeding power, <clears throat> overwhelming in U.S. interests, and we need to get it done. Uh, and he was strongly supported by State Department in that respect. 
So my mandate was basically to get it done. Uh, we want to have a positive outcome. Uh, but we had a few remaining issues, some of which involved the interests of specific companies, some of which were more general uh, in nature. So I was flying off to Shanghai, to Geneva, actually, to Geneva once a month, uh, meeting with the Chinese counterpart, who was then vice minister of uh, MOFCOM, Long Yongtu. Um, <clears throat> and we were just knocking off one issue at a time. Um, there were issues involving uh, quotas, tariff rate quotas for agricultural uh, commodities. That was a, a big deal. There were intense issues involving insurance, particularly led by Hank Greenberg and AIG, which was arguably the most powerful company in the uh, U.S.-China relationship at the time. It's before this, is well before 2009, obviously. Um, and um, Hank Greenberg was a legendary negotiator, and one didn't want to be a government official with him uh, behind you. Um, and um, so a good, uh, a shocking amount of the negotiation involved dealing with, with uh, AIG's specific demands, which had to do with setting up wholly owned branches in every town and hamlet in China. Um, <clears throat> So market access related concerns. Yeah, market access issue, yeah. Um, but there were numerous down-in-the-weeds issues still to be dealt with. Um, uh, issues about China's commitment to market access for uh, construction companies, for... Um, infrastructure development in China, where China was very resistant to joining the WTO's plurilateral agreement on the subject. And we got a half measure. They committed to studying it or working on it over the years, which they're still doing. This is the government procurement agreement. Government procurement agreement, yeah. And uh, just a small example, rare earths. Rare earths was an issue that came up. <clears throat> and, you know, at the time, I barely knew what a rare earth was. I just knew that they weren't rare. Um, I was told that, but uh, but basically no one cared. And, you know, you you negotiated about things that American industry cared about, and no one was pushing the issue. It was just kind of out there. So we we were unable to get the kinds of commitments on rare earths that would have been useful. We finally got to the end of the process, and we're meeting in Geneva to wrap it up on September eleventh, two thousand one. Uh, and we were uh, about to reach closure when the uh, planes hit the uh, first planes hit the uh, World Trade World Trade uh, Center, uh, and the meeting, needless to say, was aborted. <clears throat> um, I spent the whole night on the phone with Bob Zellick, trying to figure out what to do next. In the meantime. AIG was trying to blow up the whole deal. AIG was the only entity in the world that was still paying attention to anything other than what was going on in New York and Washington, their famous singular focus on their issues. Um, and I remember having to go back in and try to turn around some deals that had been made at AIG's request, which could not be turned around, uh, and arranging a visit by Long Young Tu to New York a few days later to see Hank Greenberg, which got aborted because the Chinese got scared about going to New York under those circumstances. <clears throat> anyway, long and short of it was we got it done. And the basic vote in the Congress had occurred a few years later on uh, on uh, Charlene Barshevsky's bilateral uh, agreement. Um, and there were not serious uh, objections by large numbers of people at the time to the agreement that was understood to be uh, a market opening of China. It didn't provide any market opening in the U.S. It didn't do anything of the sort. So exactly why people have since then decided that this was the gravest era in history is a mystery to me since 
well, the provider was market access in China uh, across the board. Can I uh, quote your own testimony? Mm. Uh, you had mentioned Shanghai. That year, uh, in 2001, China was hosting APEC, and at the trade minister's meeting, you and um, uh, USTR Zella came out, and in addition to the fun of the APEC discussions, there was an ability to really drive home the bilateral negotiations mm -hmm. on WTO. And then in between that and <clears throat> your trips to Geneva, you spoke in front of the House Ways and Means Committee in which you said, uh, um, this the agreement provided us with a set of comprehensive, verifiable, and as you said in your statement, Mr. Chairman, this is Chairman of Ways mm -hmm. and Means Committee, one-way trade concessions that substantially open China's market across the spectrum to U.S. Mm -hmm. goods, services, and agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see now, um, 19 years later, how many mm -hmm. years later we're, yeah. uh, in terms of some of the areas of shortcoming you had highlighted in your testimony, IPR and market access mm. and a number of other things. You talked about the reduction in auto tariffs, which had come down yep. from over 80% to 25%. Um, not second guessing yourself at that mm. time, but um, where do you see the, the WTO, if you do, as not being able to address some kind of China specific issues, acknowledging that this is the largest accession protocol of any country to the GAD of WTO at the time. Well, as I say, I think it was a good deal at the time. Uh, China's economy was nothing like what it is now. Um, and I think it was a good deal for at least 10, 12 years. Um, <clears throat> uh, China was not yet the manufacturing center of the world. Um, and it did not become the manufacturing center of the world because of WTO became the manufacturing center of the world because of the efforts of the Chinese and the policies of the Chinese. Um, uh, but as I say, there was nothing in the WTO agreement that uh, preordained or foreordained, foreordained uh, China's uh, development of an East Asia uh, manufacturing integrated network with China as the center. That just happened because of the efforts of the Chinese government sound policies by the Chinese government um, that drew other countries in the region into their, uh, their uh, assembly system. Clearly, the other thing to remember was the premier at the time was Zhu Rongji. And Zhu Rongji was emphatically committed to driving market-oriented reform in China. Uh, he was arguably the most unpopular man in China. Uh, he had no respect for <clears throat> existing stakeholders if they got in the way of his vision of where China should be going. Uh, I think it was a common expectation at the time that Zhu Rongji represented, if not personally, then at least his policies represented the way of the future uh, in China. Uh, and the one that came after Zhu Rongji uh, was likely to follow his uh, example. Um, that assumption didn't bear out. The people who came after him uh, had a more balanced view of the political needs of the Communist Party and market-oriented reform. Um, and China's implementation of the WTO agreement has been, uh, let's say, literal-minded. Uh, I think they've done a decent job on the specific airtight commitments, you know, tariff rate quota for X million, you know, uh, pounds of this or that product, they fulfilled it, okay? Tariffs reduced to 9.1%, they've done it. Um, they've done what they absolutely committed to. The spirit of the agreement, which comes more into play on issues like IPR, tech transfer, um, investment access, competition. Um, they have dragged their feet. Uh, so, transparency. And transparency. I mean, it's just across the board. Okay. Um, and so, uh, what needs to be done, in my view, is, as I was saying before, China needs to understand that it's a developed country.
Uh, and we need a negotiation, in my view, among Japan, the United States, the European Union, Australia, Canada, whoever else wants to join, with the Chinese, the purpose of which is to bring China's commitments up to the level of the major Western countries. Um, and exactly how one would structure this negotiation, how one would get to that point, and whether it could ever happen in the Trump administration, those are all difficult questions. As a matter of fact, impossible questions, because the Trump administration is never going to do it, because it's not committed to the multilateral system. But I think for a start, we should not turn our back on the multilateral system, uh, uh, global system of norms and international law. And we should get the Chinese to understand that they need to accept rules of the sort that I'm alluding to through the multilateral system. Uh, uh, and if they don't, the consequences in terms of access uh, to the U.S. and other markets will be severe. Okay? I was talking to Wendy Cutler on this point mm -hmm. in which she had reminded me that um, in parallel with China's WTO accession negotiations was the Doha round, and it right. was before, both before, during, and after that. Right. And she had made the interesting point that there was this expectation that you know China was joining the WTO based on kind of 1990s disciplines and technology, and that the Doha round was going to put new disciplines on that all WTO members, right. including China and the United States, would have to adhere to, and that this is the WTO accession protocol that China put forth, that we, we negotiated with China in the 90s and early 2000s, was just the floor and that things would be built on it. And right. that kind of didn't come to pass for reasons that were beyond the kind of our, two, our two countries and the challenge of negotiating a very large plurilateral That's agreement. right, it didn't. Uh, and China resisted reopening their protocols since they said we've already given it the office. But they were able to hide behind other countries like India uh, who basically hadn't committed to opening their economies at the time. And, and the whole momentum for progress on the Doha round fizzled away over time. And I think, I think Zelik was probably crucial to it because he was such a powerful actor. And once he moved on to a different job, there wasn't someone who could make it happen. Do you think uh, you've worked with a number of people who ended up working on China, senior people, I'm thinking of Bob Zellick and John Huntsman, for example. Um, do you think your engagement with those folks turned them into people who got interested in China policy and felt like working with China was an important part of, kind of US foreign policy? Or uh, I'm not asking you to kind of inflate your role, but but do you think you were quite instrumental in, I could just think of those two, probably some other folks too, Jim Steinberg. Um, um, how did you, I guess, how did you conceive your role and what, what role do you think you had in their um, engagement with China? And then for a number of them, they're kind of uh, launching from that beginning engagement to something kind of much broader. I would say there were a number of people, Bob Zellick certainly, Jim Steinberg, uh, Sandy Berger, um, <clears throat> Tom Donlan, uh, all of whom were greatly interested in China before I came along. Uh, they all felt that China was <clears throat> not, China's role in the world was not properly understood uh, and that we could do better in our relationship uh, with China with uh, more focus and more clarity. Um, uh, I didn't persuade any of them that was the case. They all started with that uh, prejudice, if you will, that assumption. Uh, and in each case, I became, I don't know, they're kind of their conciliary. Uh, here's what you can do with the Chinese. Here's what you can't do with the Chinese. Um, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't describe my role as a, uh, as a grand strategist, because each of these people was in their own way a grand strategist. I would describe it more as providing, you know, as being captain of the ship or providing course corrections or, you know, how do we get from here to there? They had conceptions of where they wanted to get. And I would say, hey, that's going to work or that's not going to work or here's how we do it or here's what we can put on the table. 
China policy was not partisan uh, until, I don't know, until when. It was not. There were people, serious people, who understood China's importance in the world, the importance of the U.S. getting the relationship with China right, that a uh, sinking into a relationship of hostility with China would profoundly uh, affect uh, a range of U.S. equities and a range of U.S. interests uh, in a negative way, uh, and that we needed to build kind of a, uh, a safety net uh, onto the relationship, build habits of cooperation uh, at the same time as we were confronting them on a, a range of issues. You know, there was a cliche uh, in the Zhang Zemin era. I remember Zhang, Zhang had his sort of 16 character slogan for relations with the United States. Uh, and the essence of it was um, we should, you know, cooperate where we can and uh, uh, and manage differences. That was the gist of it, okay? And it, in Chinese, when you string that out with 75 other cliches, it kind of gets lost because, you know, win-win co cooperation and all the other things the Chinese say where you kind of, your eyes glaze over. Um, that was not a meaningless cliche. Uh, the U.S. had its own version of it, which was basically... Uh, a relationship based on cooperation when we can and competition when we can't, okay? That was a sound approach. Uh, it was, you know, it doesn't get you into decisions on every issue that comes along, but it's a, a good starting point for thinking about the relationship with China. You start with the goal of cooperating if you can, okay? And then, but you recognize absolutely up front, there are going to be areas, perhaps a lot of areas, uh, where you won't, and you're going to be competing. And as the Chinese put it, you're going to manage those differences. Well, take Taiwan, for example. You know, that's an area of difference that's not going to be overcome. But we sure as hell need to manage the difference of views, because if we don't manage the difference in views, what's the alternative? Uh, the alternative is is dire, um, and so uh, I fear that we're, we've gone off that track in the last few years, with the sudden appearance of uh, uh, seemingly thousands of experts on China, um, uh, none of whom I've heard of, uh, who are all writing the same thing uh, about China as. Uh, a predatory uh, power uh, whose existence threatens the United States and whose very action uh, is a threat which must be countered uh, and which should be a unifying principle for U.S. foreign policy. Look at National Security Advisor Bolton's speech the other day about Africa. Uh, as best I could tell, the only reason we care about Africa from the speech is because the Chinese and the Russians are there and we have to combat them at every turn. That's a rather cramped and narrow vision of U.S. Uh, interests in the world, uh, and we used to have another another cliche, if you will, which I think has some value, which was if you treat China like an enemy, it's going to become an enemy. Um, it was said very often, and people would sort of roll their eyes, but you just think about it in personal terms. You know, the analogy between people and countries doesn't always work, but if you treat someone as hostile and you treat them as an enemy, they're going to reciprocate. And in that respect, countries are not very different. Now, I'm not saying the Chinese don't bear tremendous responsibility for the deterioration of relations, and we can go through all the things they've done that have led us to this pass. But we should not surrender our own vision and our own clarity about where the relationship should go simply because the Chinese are screwing up. Uh, we need to kind of look beyond the next year or two uh, and say where do we want this relationship to go and what are our guiding principles. So I think that I think that all the people you alluded to understood that. Mm -hmm. Let's bring it back to where this started. That's that's the way they thought about the relationship with China. 
Could I ask you on your role in, in kind of helping them interact with China in a way that was productive? Um, was it difficult for, these are very smart people mm -hmm. who are used to dealing with smart opposite numbers and the Chinese system is sometimes quite straitjacketed and doesn't always produce a counterpart who yep. can engage on these things. How did you kind of manage that aspect of the horseshoe design and the kind of long interpretation needs and the, I mean, it's really difficult to get to know your Chinese counterpart in a, in a, in a serious way because of the challenges on their side of, of their reporting requirements and other things. So how did, how did you kind of help that process to at least get as, as much as you could advance the ball forward given the restrictions on, on, their, on the Chinese side? And well, I think uh, what you said is absolutely true. And it's not something you can overcome. Uh, it's not something where there are shortcuts either. I, the first time I encountered this, I think it was 1996, during the Taiwan Strait tensions, where uh, people, senior levels in the US government, decided, oh, we're fed up with dealing with the foreign ministry. Um, surely there's uh, someone else we can deal with uh, who can, we can have a real straightforward conversation with. Uh, we won't get just these talking points back. Some genius decided that Liu Huaqiu, because he had a party post, should be the counterpart. Okay? And he was, by coincidence, he was coming to the US and people said, aha, here's our moment. We're going to establish this back channel and we're going to finally communicate. Well, needless to say, it didn't work out. Um, I mean, you know, so Tony Lake spent, you know, 10 hours with Liu Huaqiu at Averill, uh, at Pamela Harriman's estate out in Middleburg, Virginia, uh, in a strategic dialogue, and we treated Leo Hocho like a god, uh, and it didn't produce any uh, startling results. He was, you know, part of the system. He wasn't going to deviate. He had his minders and his handlers with him, uh, and that was that. Um, and I saw the same impulse some years later. Can't remember in which administration where there was uh, a sudden desire to meet with other members of the Politburo Standing Committee. You know, why can't we meet with the members of the Politburo Standing Committee? They're the guys who make the ultimate decisions in China, not these foreign ministry people. So let's figure out how to meet with, I don't know, with, you know, all the players, you know, with Wang Huning and Li Zhangshu and, and all these guys. And that went nowhere, of course. Um, and it went nowhere in part because of the peculiarities of the Chinese system but beyond that, I mean, look, look, let's face it. If a Chinese came to the U.S., a uh, Chinese big shot came to the U.S. and said, I don't really feel like meeting with the Secretary of State, but I hear that, you know, that Dennis McDonough and Valerie Jarrett are the ones who are the presidents here. I'd like to set meetings with them. As a matter of fact, I knew diplomats from other countries who tried that. Uh, and they, of course, said, take a hike. You know, we have channels for this kind of thing. Um, and so uh, the Chinese side, it's even stronger. So getting beyond the channels, uh, that's not the way it's done. I, I think what you can do is, you know, what Hank Paulson did with the strategic economic dialogue and then what Tim Geithner and Hillary Clinton did with the strategic and economic dialogue where they had like a two-day uh, event and they would have private dinner at Blair House and. Uh, and private, you know, small meetings, just a few people involved, and um, uh, a lot of correspondence, a lot of interaction. Uh, you can get somewhere with that, um, but you can't do it with people who are outside of the, the regular channels. It's not going not gonna to hold. So in Hillary's case, she did it with Dai Bingua, huh? And in Tim Geithner's case, and in Hank Paulson's case, they did it with Wang Shishan. Uh, and those were productive. I think they got further along than than um, than usual. You know, Hank was on the phone all the time with Wang Chishan, so was Tim Geithner. You know, phone calls, uh, social meetings. Um, uh, those things can have some uh, some utility, but you can't pick your interlocutor. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I'd love to move to your time at the. NSC in the Obama administration, 
But before getting to the specifics of the policy, and, and I'll certainly ask you about that, I just wanted to say, ask your remarkable transition and how you saw yourself and others moving from a career foreign service officer for, oh, three decades near there, yeah. uh, to then moving to Brookings in the think tank world and consulting some, and then moving into the political kind of circles. Um, I would say it's relatively unusual for people to do that successfully. It's not unusual for people to do it, but it's relatively unusual for people to be successful about it. Um, uh, how did you uh, work with, you had mentioned some of the other folks before, the political levels when you were a career person, and then how did you kind of yourself transition to the kind of political level? Uh, and then we can get to the specifics of your time in the Obama administration. Well, you recall when we were at the NSC in the late Clinton administration, uh, we were exposed to a lot of political actors. Uh, and in that process, you learn how political people think differently from the way they think at the agencies that we came from. Uh, you develop a different perspective uh, on policy. So you once told me the story of how um, you were an advisor to candidate Obama mm -hmm. on Asia policy. And I don't know if you would care to share, but I found it an interesting one of a phone call you got from someone you used to work with, Dick Holbrook, <clears throat> making a suggestion about where uh, advisors were on the Democratic capital D side of the, uh, of the advisory system, of the ecosystem, in advising the presumed nominee that yeah. year, which was Hillary Clinton. Right. Uh, and you had worked for Holbrook when he was assistant secretary? That's right. Assistant secretary for East Asia in the 70s. And you were the staff assistant. Yeah. So in the State Department system, that, uh, that sort of relationship is a unique one, and it's how people often make their careers, is they build up a good relationship with an assistant secretary, and then they're off to Jakarta or off to Beijing or off to Tokyo, and that, that helps kind of cement their position either for the assistant secretary job or the undersecretary or some other kind of assistant job. And so, um, and Dick Holbrook was a larger-than-life person uh, throughout his time in and, and out of government. Um, I, I guess I would just ask what, what it was like to get that call and what, how, how, you, how you handled that. Well, you know, he was, I guess, my first sort of godfather in the U.S. government, and he was, as you say, a larger-than-life figure. Um, he was profoundly effective in every job I saw him. Uh, he was a person with massive self-confidence that was matched by the ability to live up to the self-confidence that he projected, which divided the world into people who thought he was the greatest and people who detested him um, because they saw only the superficial. Um, he also, by the way, was a hugely moral uh, actor. Uh, his interest uh, in refugee issues was second to none. Um, very interesting Tibet issue, for example. Um, but uh, you know, I worked for him in the 70s, and then he helped get me into the China field. Uh, but then he was not part of my professional life. Uh, we'd see each other periodically. Uh, I saw him in 1988. No, 1992. 1992, when he came out to Hong Kong, where I was stationed. Uh, and we had dinner. And he told me he didn't think he'd be going into the Clinton administration. Uh, because candidate Clinton did not agree with his views on China, which in essence, Clinton's view was revocation or conditionality of MFN. Uh, uh, and Dick was resolutely opposed, opposed to that and the dangers in U.S.-China relations if candidate Clinton went on the path he was talking about during the campaign. And Dick, to his great credit, was very candid up front with 
Bill Clinton about that, and Dick told me that that basically had terminated his chances. But of course, as in politics, you know, things turned around, and he didn't get the Washington job, but he was, and he didn't, wasn't named ambassador to Japan, which I think was his next choice, but he was named ambassador to Germany. Uh, I did that for a while, and then that in turn led to become assistant secretary for Europe, uh, and he then negotiated the Bosnia, uh, Bosnia issue. So, you know, I, I, I spoke to Clinton subsequently about Holbrook. He was a tremendous admirer of Holbrook. You know, and Hillary loved him. Uh, they both were huge admirers of Holbrook. But, you know, Dick, to me, was a model. You know, he said, here's what I do on China, and I'll agree with you. And it killed his chances in the short run. In the long run, I think it enhanced his image uh, and his, uh, with, with them. Bring us up to 2008, when I was for candidate Obama, and I was very one of the very few people who wore, in the Asia field, there were about five of us, who were supporting candidate Obama. And um, uh, Dick was in charge of the whole foreign policy apparatus, as I recall, for uh, for Hillary. And he called me. And in essence said, you know, I, I had said something publicly. I was quoted in Time magazine saying something that was read as negative about Hillary. Uh, it was an article by someone or other in Time or Newsweek, I think it was Time, uh, explaining why a number of people who worked for the Clintons were now supporting Obama. And I was an example. And I explained why. Uh, and Dick called me and kind of read me the riot act, saying, you need to understand that Hillary's going to win, uh, and we're all going to come together, um, and don't make it harder to come together by your gratuitous public commentary. And I was told at the time, Dick was making a number of calls to people, basically lassoing them. This is politics. Yeah, I mean, you can't take these things personally. Um, I did take it personally, <laughs> however, at the time. And I shot back something that I can't repeat on microphone. Um, the gist was, I don't give a something or other uh, about coming together. I'm supporting candidate Obama, period. And uh, uh, I'm not doing this for a job. I don't care if I get a job or not. I'm doing this for the country. Uh, and uh, I have heard what you said, and I am not interested in what you had to say. Um, and Dick, in this characteristic fashion, immediately got off the high horse and was suddenly very mollifying. I think he, you know, he's a negotiator. He found that he didn't have the leverage over me that he thought he had, that I wasn't interested in the job. And if you're not interested in something, you've got leverage, okay? At that point, he realized, I better be nice to this guy because I can't bully him to get to my conclusion, so let's try a different tack. So we didn't have a very pleasant conversation after that. Huh. <laughs> a man with a gift. Um, I actually saw him the last time I saw him. Uh, the night before he had his uh, aneurysm. Uh, I was at the White House, at the West Wing, at the entrance there, you know, where the awning is, mm -hmm. and I was coming out from a meeting with the president, and uh, Dick was going in. Oh. oh, how are you doing? I hadn't seen him for a while. So we chatted for 10 or 15 minutes by the entrance. Uh, he seemed fine to me. Oh. Seemed completely normal. Um, we had a lovely chat about 6, 7 p.m. And then I heard the next morning at 8 a.m. he had an aneurysm in the Secretary of State's office and was taken off to the hospital and never revived. Oh. Uh, there's been a lot written about Dick. And I, I think George Packer is doing a book on him now, which I think will be the definitive book. I think Packer's very good. So Obama wins the nomination, wins the presidency. You guys come in and you wrote your book at, uh, at Brookings about the kind of Asia policy. But the centerpiece of much of the foreign policy was Looking, doubling down on Afghanistan, and there were some other components of 
the Obama mm -hmm. foreign policy. But one of the big parts was this kind of rebalancing U.S. Mm -hmm. focus away from the greater Middle East towards Asia. How did you, you had this kind of broad concept, a number of the different advisors who were there who then went to the administration, how did you see the kind of execution of that in um, actually coming into office and, and then putting the policy pieces into place? Well, let me be modest on that point. Uh, the whole notion of rebalancing, I regarded largely as a Tom Donlan concept, okay? And I think that's kind of the way people at that level think. Um, partly for strategic and partly for tactical reasons. You know, he knew that they were getting out of Iraq. Uh, and even though, as you say, they were doubling down on Afghanistan, they did not want to make it into the centerpiece of U.S. foreign policy. They wanted to kind of manage the issue. So for someone like a Donilon, Tom would describe it in strategic terms. You know, we're trying to move from this obsession with the Middle East, obsession with Western Asia, towards the part of the world that really matters, matters more, and that's Asia, okay? And so we came up with this notion of rebalancing, and again, political people come up with these phrases that don't necessarily come naturally to some of us who were brought up in the, the foreign policy apparatus as opposed to the, the public interface. Huh? Um, I mean, my own conception was more modest. My own conception was <clears throat> somewhat defensive. Number one, I had seen a succession of administrations screw up U.S.-China relations by coming in with wrong-headed ideas, um, thinking they could radically alter the U.S.-China relationship by kind of whacking them with a two-by-four, and it had never worked out. I'd seen it with Reagan when it distinctly did not work out and ended with the 82 communique. I saw it with Bill Clinton with the conditional MFN, which he had to back down on. And to a lesser degree with George W. Bush, who talked about China as a strategic competitor rather than a strategic partner. It's an odd formulation that I think his political people came up with. Um, and after 9-11, he had to abandon that um, completely. Matter of fact, he never referred to China as a strategic competitor once he was president. That was a campaign phrase. I understand that some of his top advisors, whom I will not name, um, in the White House, use the phrase, and he said, what are you doing? That's, we're done with that, okay? So I did not want, and it caused a lot of problems the first year, even with Bush, you remember, with the EP3 episode. And so I didn't want a repetition of that. So number one, I wanted us to get off to a stable start in the relationship with China. Number two, allies and partners in Southeast Asia. You know, I was a Democrat in the Democratic administration, but my views about foreign policy were fairly traditional with regard to Asia. And my concern was that Japanese, Koreans, Southeast Asians had memories of previous administrations, particularly the Carter administration, but not exclusively. Um, beyond that, congressional members that made them think that Democrats were hostile to their interests. They remembered you know, Democrats on the Hill in the 1980s, on Japan, uh, very protectionist on, on trade. Um, uh, they remembered Carter, President Carter threatening to pull troops out of South Korea. Uh, and in Southeast Asia, they resented all the hammering on human rights and wanted to concentrate on economic issues. So there was a sense, encouraged, I think, by Republicans in Washington, that you know, you Asians are really Republicans. Your interests coincide with ours. And I never felt that was right, never felt it was fair, and I felt that the right kind of attention to Asian interests would help uh, combat that false narrative and serve U.S. interests. So um, I started out with, you know, very much an incentive to build relations with um, Southeast Asia uh, with the Koreans and with the Japanese and just keep the China, the China relationship on an even keel. Okay, That was kind of the way I conceived of my own priorities. And no, I mean, none of them being easy and keeping a relationship on an even keel doesn't mean ignoring it in a tremendous amount of attention. Um, but 
you do the tremendous amount on Southeast Asia, for example, um, and a tremendous amount on Japan and Korea. I spent a lot of time with, with the senior leadership of Korea, along with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, uh, with, with President Lee Myung-bak and the foreign minister, and their national security advisor, and we really became close to them. Uh, and we did a lot for them when the, the Chonan was sunk and when they were, uh, when Yeonpyeong Island was, uh, was shelled. Uh, you know, we concluded the FTA, we provided military support during crises, we uh, extended U.S. leadership of the U.N. commands. We did a whole bunch of things for the Koreans they really appreciated. And um, Japanese presented a number of problems, in part because the LDP lost, and Hatayama was prime minister for a year, and the, the DPJ was new to political power and didn't wield it very well. So that was a, a huge challenge. Southeast Asia, we did any number of things, as you know, joining the East Asia Summit, um, signing the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, um, setting up a an ambassador to ASEAN, uh, first visit ever to ASEAN headquarters, a whole bunch of things. So um, Tom Donnan called it the um, rebalance, and Kurt Campbell called it the pivot. I just did it right. without calling it anything. Yeah. Um, within that, on the China part of it, could you talk a little bit about how you kind of handled or thought about the competing interests. Um, I have a short list, but I'm sure there's a much broader one of South China Sea, kind of cyber, market access, human rights. I mean, there are a huge range of things. I don't know if it's helpful to think about the, you had mentioned President Obama's trip in 09 and then the kind of return one, Hu Jintao to the US. Is that a helpful way to talk about balancing those interests? I'd uh, say that the main trajectory was 2009, we were building up to the the Obama visit, and we're trying to keep everything stable, um, and trying to um, you know make incremental progress on issues. We set up the strategic and economic dialogue to get the main actors interacting uh, with each other on a regular basis. The Hu Jintao visit had problems with the public messaging, which did not go well, and I think. The private meetings were fine, but the public messaging created a backlash in the United States, which the media loves to do. Um, and then in 2010, I think in my book I called the chapter The Year of Living Assertively, the Chinese did a number of things that uh, we regarded as threats to our national interest. And we had to push back. It was a year of pushing back. South China Sea, their excessive support for the North Koreans after the sinking of the Chonan, their hostility to Japan, difficulty on economic issues. By the way, you know, when people look back and wonder why more wasn't done on economic issues under the late Bush administration and the, Clinton, the Obama administration, I think people forget there was one issue that overwhelmed all other issues, and that was currency. That's all anyone outside talked about, and that's what Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner focused on, was currency. Uh, and the and, Chinese- and backing up a little bit, the financial crisis that was melting down yeah, the, was, the US well, economy and the global economy, so well, you had both of those two things. Well, you had, well, that as well. So you had China running like eight or 9% global surpluses in their trade, um, in part because of an, a, a barely disguised manipulated currency, or certainly an undervalued currency. Uh, and you had a recognition by Obama and Bush and Paulson and Geithner that stagnation in the Chinese economy at a time when we were shitting you know, millions of jobs uh, was profoundly contrary to U.S. interests. You had those two things. Uh, so on the one hand, wanted to coordinate on stimulus, and secondly, they wanted to drive the Chinese 
currency value up. Those were the two issues. Not, you know, we, market access continued and there were continuing discussions uh, USTR and supported by the administration fighting market, uh, market access issues tooth and nail. But those were the two big ones. And so every meeting we have with the Chinese under Obama in the first year or two, I would say close to 50% of the meeting would be economic. Uh, and almost all of that would be currency, some stimulus. Okay? Uh, and then the non-economic portion, Iran was very heavy, the Iran nuclear program, uh, and the North Korean no nuclear program. Those two issues would eat up. If you look at presidential agendas, presidential meetings, you get a sense of what an administration's agenda is. And I think that gives you an idea that those three issues dominated discussions at the head of at the head of state level. Okay. And, it, and in your experience, given the amount of time, three or four issues is kind of all you can get to in that level of meeting. Sure, you know what a meeting's like. You know, it's a two hour meeting of which each side gets to speak for one hour, but it's consecutive interpretation. So actually each side is just speaking for a half hour. And I gather after I left, Obama got fed up with this and I think they tried to set up some sort of simultaneous interpretation method for which I, I bless them. Uh, I mean, it's so tedious to sit there through these lengthy uh, interpretations. I mean, you lose some quality, but uh, I applaud their efforts. You know, I, I think the way that our senior leaders look at it, not unsensibly, is, hey, you know, we're in the era of Google Translate. I can sit down and I can read people's daily, you know, maybe not so accurately, but why do I have to sit here for 15 minutes while an interpreter goes through his elaborate notes? You know, I, I, I'm sympathetic if they can work that out. So you had mentioned Hu Jintao's visit in 11, and then um, there was a kind of effort to get to know the then vice president to be president, Xi Jinping. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your time in the administration and what the thinking was on how that hand of, of power would go and what U.S. policy might look like? Not that much, James, because I was gone before. Um, I left in 2011 before, uh, uh, I mean, she took office in what, end of 2012? That's right, yeah. End of 2012. So I certainly, the only thing I remember clearly is Joe Biden's, Vice President Biden's trip to Beijing, to China. And he spent like 10, 11 hours talking to, um, to Xi Jinping, spent a lot of time with Xi. Uh, and I had dinner with Vice President Biden shortly thereafter and got his perceptions on Xi Jinping. Um, so that was revealing. They got on quite well, and Biden certainly admired what he saw as a politician's instincts on the part of Xi Jinping. You know, the guy had been an official down in Fujian and in Zhejiang, and he thought like a, a mayor and a governor in many respects, you know, get the sewers operating and fix the ports and improve the educational system, thought, thought like a local official in many ways. And then my only other brief interaction, I came in as an outsider when the administration was trying to decide after he became president, and they were looking well, you know, when should they see the guy? How are they going to see him? It was beginning of 2013, and they weren't going to see him until APEC, or the end of the year. And I came in and argued strongly for doing something much sooner. Um, it was an argument that was uh, well-received by Danny Russell, less well-received by some others. Uh, and... Um, they decided to... Danny Russell, who had taken your position Danny as Danny Russell, I'm sorry, was senior director of NSC. Uh, and it led to the meeting at Sunnylands um, in the spring of 2013, which I continue to think is the right way to, to try to get off to a good start with... Um, you know, I, the, uh, President Trump, whom I do not admire as a human being or as a president, um, uh, and about whom I am... Uh, extremely negative in, uh, in virtually all respects. Uh, one thing he does have right is his, although to a fault, is his emphasis on personal relationships. Um, now, 
He does it in part because he doesn't begin to understand the importance of state-to-state -state relationships or institutions or history uh, or you know what the history of China is or what the history of France is or what the history of Germany is. He doesn't have a clue. All he knows is a deal with another head of state or government. Um, but leaving aside the ignorance part, that's a good instinct. The instinct that I got to have a good relationship with Xi Jinping. I got to have a good relationship with with Abe, uh, even some of the less desirable people. Why do you think that's so important in the Chinese context of having a good state to state at that kind of head of state level? I don't think it's especially important in the Chinese context. I think it's it's important in any relationship, uh, any uh, diplomatic any relationship. diplomatic relationship. Uh, it's important in the Chinese context. I think it's been useful for. Uh, for Trump and the U.S. and just again providing a safety net, that that everything else this administration is doing towards China um, is more or less hostile, uh, and constituencies are being built up on both sides that want the relationship to tank. Uh, is good if you have a counterpart at the presidential level who um, is left with the impression, at least that the head of state to head of state level is important to the U.S. side, and they can pick up the phone and call them, which they do not infrequently, uh, to work out a problem. I mean, you know, Xi Jinping obviously called President Trump about ZTE when the U.S. was shut down. Now, whether it was a good decision or a bad decision, let's leave that aside. It's clear that Xi Jinping's call uh, was crucial in saving ZTE. It's one of the few times I can think of where the Chinese side actually initiated the call. That's right. They, the Chinese side initiated, which is not common. But I think that Xi Jinping has realized that having a good relationship with Trump prevents a free fall in the relationship. And Trump, just for his own reasons, because of his modus operandi, wants to have a good relationship uh, with him. So I give him credit for that, but nothing else. Maybe we could just end. You've written about Xi Jinping's view of the world and China as a mm -hmm. rule maker, not a rule taker. Clearly a different kind of China than mm -hmm. when you went in, 19, yeah. in the 1980s. Uh, how should we think about China going forward in a, a country that wants to make rules? A lot of ways it seems at this point it's kind of an un gestated sense of, yes, China should be a rule maker, but what that actually means kind of day-to-day -day hasn't manifested itself. But how should we think about for the next say, decade about where China is in the international system? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is the U.S. needs to commit itself to the international system and to multilateral uh, decision-making. If the U.S. does not, um, as this administration does not, we're leaving the door open for China to be uh, a, a rule maker with a capital R and a capital M. Um, if we're at the table and we're involved and we're putting forward serious proposals, then they are naturally going to get traction with others. If we've just taken a hike and either withdrawn from the organization completely or made clear our disdain for the organization, then countries in that organization will look to others uh, for guidance about the future. So the first thing we've got to do is be there and mean it uh, and have an interest in international governance and international rulemaking. I, I mean, I understand, I'm not a scholar, but I know the whole history, a fair amount of the history of, you know, realist school versus the John Eikenberry school, of, uh, uh, which believes in international norms. I, I get it. Uh, I, I think serious people understand that neither side is completely right that you can't conduct a foreign policy based entirely upon um, international rules and governance and ideals. You cannot do that. You know, it's not Woodrow Wilson in 1918. On the other hand, uh, it's not a Hobbesian world either. And just going out there saying, you know, we're big and tough and we are going to get our way. Uh, and we don't care about the global structure because we don't need it. Uh, uh, is doomed to failure. And that's a much longer argument, but there's no question in my mind that is not going to get you where you want to go as a nation. So you got to have both. Um, so China as rulemaker. Um, 
I, I don't really like the phrase. I don't. I think China as a, a rule shaper, China as a participant um, uh, in rulemaking. I think for the most part, we have to accept that, and we have to uh, accepting it doesn't mean that they, their proposals carry the day, but we do have to accept the notion that you know 1.3 billion people and you know X percent of global GDP and uh, uh, rising power that their interests need to be protected uh, through the global system, um, uh, that the global system was designed without their participation, and that uh, it's natural and acceptable that they're going to play a role going forward. Uh, on the other hand, there are areas where, you know, I saw Foreign Minister Wang Yi's speech the other day, lengthy speech about China's foreign policy. And you have to look long and hard to find a reference to international rules in there. It's buried in there. I didn't find the, I didn't find the phrase international law anywhere. There's a lot of win-win and a lot of cooperation and that sort of thing. Um, but not according to any norms or laws. Uh, and I think the Chinese, you know, we have our own sins in the last couple of years, particularly under Trump. But the Chinese have never really committed ideologically, in my view, to the international system of law and norms across the board. Uh, they regard them in a sort of a tactical, a tactical way. Now, the worst of it, obviously, is the South China Sea. Uh, and I can kind of understand their position there in the sense that they regard this as a territorial issue. Uh, and it's obviously important from a national security point of view since it's their back door, backyard. Um, but I'm sorry, there are international norms, and that's why Hillary Clinton made the speech, the presentation she did in Hanoi in 2010. Uh, and we should never give up the position of principle about the nine dash lines, unacceptability, um, and the primacy of, of uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea uh, in determining rights within the South China Sea. Those are fixed principles. Um, and the Chinese, you know, we accept them in the Caribbean. Hmm? The Chinese, at some point, are going to have to come around to that, in my opinion. And their position is unacceptable until they do. Okay? Um, I think that the other area where they uh, are in international norms, where they are certainly contrary to our interests, is the whole digital uh, information technology area where they have a, a, a series of foundations for what they do based on extreme sovereignty, um, uh, disregard of stakeholders besides governments, um, uh, indifference to privacy and acceptance of surveillance, a whole series of norms that, uh, if you will, are Western norms that I think they're respected generally in the United States and in Europe. Um, it's a tough one because they're not so much respected outside of that area. I think the Chinese have a certain amount of traction in the developing world with their positions on these, these issues. So I think that's an issue where, I think that and the South China Sea issue are ones where we need to stay true to our principles and hold firm. I think in other respects, the Chinese are somewhat malleable. Okay? Uh, I think on, on UN issues and WTO issues and international organizations generally, generally we can work with them, you know, non-proliferation issues um, and certain degrees of accommodation such as we accommodate others uh, are appropriate. But, you know, the Chinese need to understand that these international principles matter, um, particularly in the WTO area. Um, and of course, they've done some things outside of the system. The creation of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which I don't see in any way as a threat to US interests. I think that the administration's noise about it was inappropriate. Um, Asia desperately needs infrastructure. Uh, there was no, yeah, I, I don't understand policies of administrations where we get up and scream 
about Something Chinese offering cool. assistance or aid to someone. And we say to them, you can't take it. And they say, why? Because we don't like them. Uh, uh, and you're going to become subordinate to their interests, and you fall into a debt trap. Uh, and they say, fine, can you fund the dam or the road? No, 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 we don't do that kind of thing. But don't take any money from them. That is a completely untenable and ridiculous position, which no country in the world is ever going to accept. Um, they may wink at us, but they're, they're not going to. So in the AIB, you know, I think the Chinese are generally trying to live up to international standards. They've got a serious, you know, serious president who's got backgrounds in these institutions. Um, Belt Road Initiative is a bit of a different set of challenges. It's a longer discussion. Uh, I don't think we should be supportive of the Belt and Road Initiative, but I don't think we should regard it as kind of uh, a global threat. Ambassador Jeffrey Bader, thank you so much. It's really great to hear about your incredible career and, and your views on where we are today in China. I appreciate the time. Thank you, James. It's great to talk. Ambassador Jeff Bader, speaking with me from Los Angeles, California. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.